Good afternoon, everyone. And uh, before we begin, a big congratulations to the Institute of, uh, of uh, Policy Studies on their 30th anniversary. Perhaps some of you were here last evening when DPM Tharman gave his remarks to the audience, and he used that analogy of the escalator. And I can, I'm sure that I certainly am never going to look at an escalator in the same way again. I, I think that may be same for all of you. But interestingly, when DPM mentioned that escalator, it reminded me of a very early experience, probably one of my first with an escalator when I was six years old in cold storage, Orchard Road. Very curious to the fact that this escalator had people on it, I noticed there was this little red button at the side. <laughs> and uh, being the curious individual that I am, and I did grow up to be a journalist, so it was fated, right? I pressed that button. <laughs> there were people on the escalator. It's not funny, right? The escalator stopped, and I learned very early DPM Tharman's analogy. I never shared that story with him. And it is true. When the escalator stops, you suddenly notice you're not moving, you look around, you look at everyone else on the escalator. So it made perfect sense to me. Now the goal of this conference has set a high bar to discuss the new Singapore polity that will be inclusive for everyone. To answer this, we've heard that we must think and talk about power, the role of systems, not just individual choices, because that isn't always the answer. Just Think differently. Change your mindset. Things will change. Very often they don't. What we want are those good outcomes. And so the questions that we've heard over the past couple of days, and more specifically during the three panels, have been what creates disparities in Singapore? How does social mobility affect decision-making and the behavior of the poor? If you'd listened to Walter Tessera's speech earlier in his remarks, he mentioned that if you're impoverished, maybe you act and behave differently. You have fewer options after all. Do we understand sufficiently the conditions of those who are impoverished? What are the emerging social identities and what attitudes do we adopt towards them? Does diversity need to be managed? And if we are managing it, what are the positive outcomes from engagement that we can ascertain? We want cohesion, inclusivity, a sense of progress together, but what is our confidence in the future? Are we collectively confident? And when we say that we want to do much better for the future, when we say that, what do we mean in a country like Singapore where we've had so much progress over the decades? And so today, my panel include Mr. Chanchun Singh, Minister for Trade and Industry, Ms. Chua Mui-Hung, she is opinion editor with The Straits Times, and Han Yong-mei, editor of Chinese Media Group. And I'll start with my first question to you, Mr. Chan, which is about 
social inequality. It exists everywhere. It isn't peculiar to Singapore. It's not just us. But there is this wider conversation about why we're concerned about it. When we have so many policies in place, a suite of government investments to address it, it is still on the table as part of the conversation. Why? Thank you, Don. Maybe I'd like to approach this question from a slightly different angle. I think you all have been here for one whole day. Many of you would have discussed the causes of inequality, and I'm actually very proud as fellow Singaporeans, you all care about this. But can I perhaps shift gear a bit and just for us to take a step back and ask ourselves, what is the end goal that we are trying to achieve in this conversation about inequality? And from that perspective, what can we as a society and as individuals do about this? I think thus far, the conversation on inequality has focused a lot on one dimension, and only one dimension, and that is perhaps the income dimension. Now, I want us perhaps just to pause for a while and ask ourselves, is that the way we want to relate to each other in Singapore? Do we need who only value people, see people in one dimension. That is through the income dimension. Can we move forward together and say that, yes, this is a dimension that we are all concerned with, and I'll come back to that on how we address some of these challenges. But let us not forget, let us not forget that every individual's worth is not defined by one dimension. Okay, so there are two parts to the conversation. So let's tackle even the income inequality. And I think if I may draw some of the threads together from today's conversation and yesterday's conversation with DPM Taman. We are concerned with income inequality, not just because there is income inequality. If you ask me, my ultimate concern for all Singaporeans is this. Is this a system that allows each and every individual Singaporean to fully fulfill his or her potential? Income inequality is the outcome. But as a system, can we touch our hearts and say that we have given our people the best opportunities possible to fulfill their potential. Bearing in mind that everybody, every one of us, are gifted in different ways. If we can hand on heart say that, yes, we have tried our best to allow each individual to flourish to the fullest of his or her potential, then I think as a society, we have succeeded. And if we take that approach, then I also hope that we as a society moves away from just looking at people in a unidimensional way. 
particularly income. And there are other dimensions, race, income, education background, school background, and so forth. Because once we start doing that, we narrow our perspective of how we see people and how we relate to people. Maybe I can share my own personal story. Many of you know that I don't grow up in a wealthy household. I come from a single parent family. My mother has to work two jobs bring me and my sister up. But the question is this, as we were growing up, are there rich people around? Yes, there are rich people around. Are there poor people around? Yes, certainly. But the question is, how do we relate to one another? And I will share two perspectives of how we relate to other people and how we want other people to relate to us. I didn't feel discriminated because I was poor. Whenever I meet people, they see me for what I'm worth. See me for who I am. Regardless of <coughs> whether I come from a single parent family, regardless if I stay in a three-room flat in Circuit Road, regardless if I come from whatever school. That gives me confidence to move on. Did I meet my fair share of people that were cast me in a negative light because I don't speak in the way they speak? I don't pronounce words in the way that they pronounce? I don't share the life experiences they do? Yes, I have my fair share. So rule number one I learned in life is Let's try to treat others as we would like others to treat us. Let us not just look at someone else in a unidimensional way, say that you belong to this social class or you belong to this grouping. That's the first thing. And for those people who perhaps have gone through my own experience and have people look down on them or have people look at them negatively, Maybe I'll just encourage people to say that don't let this hold you back. My grandmother used to tell me this in Cantonese. Which essentially translates into let not other people's discrimination, bullying weigh you down. It's not the most important unless you have done something wrong, whereby the heaven is against you. And you can still try. So I think it's how we relate to one another. And I hope through this conference, because of the many topics that we have discussed, we will walk away from this not having, not looking at people from a one-dimensional perspective. Now, uh, let me address the easier part of the question, which is then, if there are income inequalities, how do we address that as a society? I think there are a few ways that we all must come together. At the national level, at the government, at the society level, we all try to do better by making sure of two policy objectives. One is that 
there is a rising tide that can lift all boats. Two, we know that regardless of the rising tide, there will be some who might be left further behind relatively. And then it is incumbent upon those who have done well to reach out to those who have not done as well and be less privileged. Because it will be quite impossible for any society to achieve absolute equality. But the way to solve it is beyond helping everybody to move along, beyond reaching out to those who have been left behind, is to make sure that we respect each other, not just on one single dimension. We do not just see each other in one single dimension. So that's one part of it. I think the other second part of the conversation in this conference that many people have talked about is that inequality is just a static problem. It is about problem here and now, which is one order of difficulty that we have to manage. But what we are even more concerned is social mobility, whereby even if I'm poor in one generation, my children, my grandchildren can aspire towards something better than this generation. And that's why we are putting in so much effort to try to make our Singapore society mobile. Because what do we recite in our pledge every day? We recite in our pledge every day to say that we will build a society regardless of race, language, religion. And if I may add, regardless of race, language, religion, ancestry, connections. We want everybody who is born a Singaporean to have the hope to fulfill their potential to the fullest extent possible. And this is why this social mobility issue, this issue of allowing each and everyone to achieve their full potential is so much in the consciousness of the government. And having said that, we know that even as we try, even as we try and we try hard, there are natural forces that we have to fight against. Many of you know that in every society, as people become more mature, as society becomes more mature, the rich will marry amongst themselves. The rich and the privileged will try their best to pass on their wealth and privileges to the next generation. There's nothing wrong with that. It is human nature. But how do we balance this whereby the more privileged one tries to protect their privileges and wealth and pass it on, and yet at the same time give hope to those that are less privileged to say that I too can have the chance to do this. If we do nothing and leave this to chance, then you can look at the statistics from the more matured countries compared to the less matured countries. The older the society is, the lower the probability of someone at the bottom 20 percentile moving to the top 20th percentile in one generation. In Singapore today, our numbers are relatively healthier than many other established countries. But as we become more matured as a society, will we similarly face the same problems whereby our society ossified? And we cannot have a situation whereby one day 
what I have gone through. I was posted overseas to work. My driver, even if he saved up every dollar that he earned for his entire life, he would probably never buy the car that he drove. That is extreme. Not just extreme inequality. It is almost extreme immobility. Now when such a situation happens, you can imagine the consequences for the society. People no longer feel that they have a stake in the society. And then the society will unravel and we will not be able to realise the full potential of each and every Singaporean. So that's what concerns us. And I hope that each of us here can play a part. Not just waiting for big policies to make big macro shifts, but each and, us, each and every one of us can play a part in how we relate to each other, how we reach out to each other. Recently, I was speaking to some students in ACS International, uh, sorry, ACS Independent, and I made this point to them because some of them were feeling a bit down because people were making fun of them, saying that they are elitists because they are in ACS Independent. And I told them this, to be in ACS Independent is not elitist because you have done well, get to where you are. But if you are in ACS Independent and you forget to reach out or if you refuse to reach out to those people who are less privileged than you, then I think that is the definition of elitism. To be successful in our system and to be able to rise up and fulfill one's potential is not elitism. To be successful and not reach out is elitism. And I hope that is something that we bear in mind as we go forward as a society. And we should appreciate, appreciate that different people have different gifts and that we should value and treasure them. And we should move away from a unidimensional conversation when we relate to one another as fellow Singaporeans. Mr Chan, class consciousness, consciousness has been on the table during this conference a great deal. Is class consciousness a problem in Singapore? You'll be too sweeping to generalize. I have met both ends of the spectrum. Maybe because I grew up from one end of the spectrum and I have seen how people treat people, if you like, on the left hand of the spectrum. I have met my fair share of people I say, who value me, relate to me based on who I am and what I'm capable of contributing. But have I met people who look at me and say that you don't speak the way we speak, you don't use the words that we use, and therefore we don't think that you are one of us. It might be verbalized, it might be non-verbalized. Have I have my fair share of such people in life? Yes, of course. 
what I want to encourage people who are in this situation is that don't let these people hold us back. Because one of the things I learned is we need to learn to respect each other and we need to learn to respect ourselves. And that, as my grandmother says, is the greatest weapon we have to fight against such. I'll give you a very tangible example. If the four of us here, if we speak a sentence in English with a sprinkling of dialect words, how would the audience react? I also don't know. Will you react because you say, ah, this is a group of people that can code switch? Or I was going to say, Jose. Uh -huh. <laughs> or do you relate that, hey, uh, why you say Jose, you know, so uncouth, right? Right. You yeah, see, yes, sometimes our bias biasness shows. As it shows, to someone whom we think not very highly, uh, he's just the abbing. He can't speak proper English. But to someone whom we think very highly, ah, this is someone who can code switch. The word code switch is also quite sophisticated. <laughs> so I, I mean, so let's not generalize, and I don't like to generalize, but I think each and every one of us can be a better person in how we relate to each other. I think that's a fair point, uh, Mr. Chan, because I can code switch, but I can tell you when I code switch, I get criticized for my code switching, and, and they say, no, no, you didn't pronounce properly, or something, and then I get called a fake Singaporean, which really hurts my feelings. <laughs> okay, Wei Hung, uh, you had a, a question. Uh, yeah, just a, a softball comment and then a relatively hardball uh, question. One of the privileges of being on a panel like this is that you know you get to um, see um, and be up close with the, the speaker. So in the few minutes before this started, when I was seated here, uh, Minister Chan, I should uh, I should declare that I knew Chun Singh when we were both at Cambridge. He was one or two years my uh, my junior. So you know I noticed that he had the bags under his eyes and he was looking really tired. And I know because I was there at the Economic Society uh, conference yesterday that he was a keynote speaker there as well. And then I read in the papers today that there was some Belt and Road conference that he spoke at and we all know he's here today and I, he has another meeting and tomorrow and next week he has some major conferences or, or whatever. So I was saying that, gosh, you look really tired. And then he quipped, and I don't think he minds me quoting him here. He said, oh, no, must justify my million-dollar salary. <laughs> and, so at which I spontaneously code switch before this entire conversation, I immediately said, Pai Tan. All right? And for those of you who don't know Hokkien, Pai Tan means, gosh, that's a hard way to earn your, 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 your money. That's a hard way to make a living. So, you know, Chun Sing, Minister Chan then said, well, I wish you would say that publicly, and I said I would, and so I just have. <laughs> so, Thank you, Mui Hun. This is not a sponsored, not part of the sponsored content. <laughs> <laughs> That's just
that's just by way of you know uh, uh, making a, a quick but serious observation that there are many different types of snobberies, and one of them is reverse snobbery, where you know you have a tendency to start looking down or disdaining people who are higher up than you. And I do think that in, in segments of Singapore society, uh, we are sometimes guilty of that. So that's a, a good reminder uh, for all of us. Okay, so much for the softball part. <laughs> um, you know, just now, Minister, you you said that. The important thing is that um, it's not just inequality per se, but that we should ask ourselves whether we have given each person uh, the potential to develop to their fullest uh, capacity. So I can't just help wondering, um, you know, can you can you look at can you look into the eyes of the child of an unwed mother and tell him, you know, no, your mummy and you cannot have subsidized uh, flat. Uh, but I know I'm helping you in all these other ways, and these are enough for you to maximize your potential, even though I deny you permanent, uh, reliable housing. Can you really do that and say that you are giving this child maximum opportunity to maximize his or her potential? I don't think we do that. We don't do that. I have been MSF minister for good three years. That's not how fellow Singaporeans. We have two different policy objectives. And I'll be the first one to stand up and tell you how we execute this sensitively. I was born into a family where I clearly know that one cannot choose one's parents. It is not for me to judge what happens between adults. Which is why in my life, I have been very determined and conscious to say that while we cannot always resolve the issues with the adults, each and every child, let's try to do our best. So that's the child part. So one policy objective is to make sure that we take care of each and every child. Then there's the second part. We say that as a society, we would like to affirm the institution of the family. So when we come up with policies in society to say that we affirm the family, marriage, parenthood. Whenever we do that, there will be a relativity, as you have suggested. Then what do we do? Because both, arguably, are worthy social policy objectives. Take care of each and every child and to affirm parenthood. So how do we resolve this? Because we affirm parenthood, does it mean that we therefore discriminate? Some will argue so, because there is a relativity. But if I may ask all of you to vote with a show of hand, just to see whether we get the things right first. How many of you will agree with me, just like my experience, that you must always take care of the child who is innocent, who didn't get to choose 
his family. All of you will, right? How many of you will also say that we must affirm the parenthood? So if there are these two objectives, then how should we balance the equation? AI, just a quick one. I mean, obviously, all policy um, options require trade-offs, but I think here the, the trade-off is between you know, the life chances of a child, and if as a country we believe that you know, every person matters, people are a human resource and all that, to me, it seems such a, a tremendous uh, waste you know, not to maximize the chances for that child. Because at the same time, of course, you can still promote marriage and uphold it in many, many different spheres of uh, the government and through you know, a multitude of policies. But why discriminate on the basis of housing to that child and the mother? No. So actually, we don't discriminate against single parent in terms of housing. But because the married couples get priority, people interpret that as discrimination. Today, what's our housing policy towards anybody who is not married? We just have two categories. People who are married and people who are not married. So, from a housing policy perspective, we look at the individual and see what kind of help we need. There are many types of reasons why families may end up single parent. There are people who are widowed. There are people who, are, like my parents, are divorced. There are people who are single because they are never ever married. So what do we do? For the people who are widowed, for the people who are divorced, it's on circumstances beyond their control. So they are for all intent and purposes treated as married couples. What about those who are unmarried? Sometimes not by choice, sometimes unfortunate circumstances. And what does HDB do? They look at each and every case. MSF, we look at each and every case. We know it's very difficult to square the two policy objectives that you all have voted for. But this is not a heartless bureaucracy, blindly applying rules. These are people behind every policy, asking ourselves which are the ones that we need to make an exception. And I can say, hand on heart, when I was at MSF, we have our fair share of decisions that we need to make. But more importantly, we are going to load the help towards the child. It's my own personal belief. I am a product of the system. The greatest help that the society has given me in my growing up years has less to do with housing, healthcare and so forth, but has most to do with education. Education was a way out for me and my family. And I continue to believe in that.
This is the reason why for many of the low-income families, when I was at MSF, we made it such a strong policy to help the child to get a good start. Starting with early childhood years. My staff once asked me, why did you charge $3 per month for the lowest income to get childcare? You know, Minister, it costs us more than $3 to collect that $3. It is not an economic efficiency question. I have been through that, and I know that even poor people, however you define, would love to have some dignity. Poor people also need self-respect. Poor people also want a sense of ownership. This is how we want to move forward. The $3 in absolute term may not be the most important, but the sense of ownership, responsibility is most important. Why do we want to provide full-day childcare? It's not just for education purposes. It's to allow many of these children from less privileged families to break out of the vicious negative cycle. That's what we try to do. But can we do that alone just by government policies and increasing the subsidies for the poor students, for the poor children? I'll be the first one to tell you that it's necessary but not sufficient. We need the community to come together. We need people to come forward touch the lives of these children. In my constituency, Buena Vista, I have the richest people in Singapore. I also have the poorest people in Singapore. When the rich people ask me how can they help, I always say one thing. I probably don't need your money as much as I need your time and your talent. If only each and every one of you can adopt one family. To reach out to the family every week, to show a positive role model for the child to move out, that I think would be much more important than even any monetary, monetary help that we can give people. But it's a long-term project. It is not about every Chinese New Year going to give people a goodie bag. It is a long-term commitment to say that every week, every two weeks, I will see whether the child is okay. For the next 15, 20 years, until the child grows up. That is how difficult it is for us to help break the vicious negative cycle for many of these less privileged families, many single families, single parent families included. So yes, the government will do what we can to make sure that we take care of each and every child. We will do what we can to affirm parenthood without putting the single parent at too great a disadvantage relatively. But we need more than that. 
We need people to step forward. We need people who will not just talk about the reasons, talk about, argue about the causes, but we all can do something for that one family in our respective neighbourhood. So that is my own perspective. I don't know whether you agree with me. I don't know whether you share my same sentiments. If I take a snapshot of what we have today compared to what I went through, certainly we have moved much, much more compared to the past. In the past, when I was growing up, I didn't know what was called MPS. We heard about the Hock Lei Bo, the Uli Bu. Welfare department. Welfare department. But my grandmother always told us, don't you dare go and apply anything from the Hock Lei Bo. Not because she was ashamed that we will be taking money from the public. But she wanted us understand. In her words, you still have hands and legs, you should go and try your best and leave the public welfare to those who really, really need it. And if I may at this point make a slight detour. Today's in Singapore, I don't think we don't have enough resources to take care of our weak and our less privileged. In fact, today in Singapore, our problem is how find who is the weak and the less privileged. I get very sad ever since I became an MP dealing with MPS cases to see how people come forward to ask for help. And I'll just give you some real stories. <coughs> On a single night, at a single time window, I can have two contrasting cases asking for the government to do more for them. Two very different cases. I have an open MPS system. A lady a single mother. She, she had multiple partners, but she is now a single parent. She had six kids trying to find a job, trying to apply for the next $300, $400, whatever the amount might be of Comcare, public assistance. One moment I was dealing with that. The next moment, at the next table, a young couple, very agitated, asking why they only got half the housing grant of 20,000. They didn't get the full housing grant of 20, I think it's a special housing grant, additional housing grant. Instead, they got 10,000. Sometimes it's almost surreal. These are all public resources. How would you respond to my surreal experiences? 
on one hand, $300 per month, full of gratitude, it would take her more than 30 months to get $10,000 worth of help. And that $300 to her probably is almost a life and death difference. If you earn $1,000 or so, $300 is 30%. The other table, the young couple, 25, 26 years old, the monthly income is $12,000. $10,000 to them means quite different. means quite differently than the $300 to the first lady. So my message perhaps to share with fellow Singaporeans is this. In today's world, in today's Singapore, I think it's not so much as how much we have to share with one another. It is also about how we share and whether we as individuals will want to take all that we think we should have or should we leave something on the table for someone who needs it a bit more than us. Because no matter how rich we are, no matter how much we tax our people, we will still come back to this age-old problem. You have more than me, I have more than her, but how do we relate to one another and how do we share the finite resources that is on the table? And I think that is an increasingly difficult question. I have used a euphemism to simply describe that. If in the past we were more equally poor, now we are more unequally rich. And many people have told me that managing the challenges of the unequally rich is even more complex than managing the problems of the equally poor. Mr. Chan. Yeah, uh, to, to declare first, go back to the uh, question on code switching. Uh, yeah, you know I'm from the Chinese media group, so speaking in English is I have to need to code switch to a language that I'm not so used to. So uh, forgive me for from reading the questions out from my iPad. Yeah, we have heard the uh, government's point that our society has gone to where we are today as a result of uh, success, not failure. And there's no doubt that we are more mobile, uh, mobile and more equal society than in the olden days where everyone was equally poor. Uh, whereas there's a more stratified society now where not everyone is equally rich. And we all know that everyone is born with different ability. Uh, and um, in that case, does everyone, every rich person today has a equal ability, it's not, not, it, not every rich person today has equal ability to tackle the issues of a rich society um, and thus tremendous pressure that one's face. On the other hand, we have been a country which is ruled by elites, where government officials rule the people. Again, in the olden days, that's fine. 
as the elites are able to solve economic and development issues in, in particular. But can the elites, which are defined by benchmark of the yesteryear, solve social and even psychological issues, and more of it as uh, uh, perceptions, perceptions issues today? And if the elites cannot derive such solution today, will they feel insecure or less confident facing the people? Will such insecurity divide the society and cause more tension? Can I respond to Yongmei's uh, question by sharing three parts? Uh, one is this thing about elitism. Two is this thing about diversity. And three, about participation. Let me start with the easy one, participation. If in the past, the mental model is that the government will solve all problems, going forward, this might be necessary but insufficient. I always like to share this example with some of my friends and colleagues. I think everyone present here have been to the National Day Parade, right? How many of you have never made a comment, a negative comment about the National Day Parade? You mean the cost? No, not the cost. The, <laughs> the anything, anything, anything. I've, I've never you, been. I've tried. I've been. tried getting tickets but, but, for a long but no, time. But no, you don't need to get ticket. You can see it on the TV even, right? So I, I have this uh, question, and I said this actually seven years ago when I first came out to join politics, but not the same story. I asked, why is it that the National Day Parade, after twenty rehearsals, still attract various comments? some not so positive. Why is it that the BMT parade, the basic military training graduation parade at the floating platform, hardly attract a negative comment, even though it has no rehearsal, even though the soldiers, the newly minted soldiers might march with the same hand, same leg? You are involved. Uh, because if I turn up at the BMT parade, it's my son. It's my son. Ownership. Why do I share this story? <laughs> because in today's society, it's not just about what is being delivered. It is also about how it's being delivered. I think many people like a sense of participation. And that is something that we must be cognizant in the way the government relates to the people. I said this seven years ago in a different way. I say that, you know, nowadays there are some pizza joint that you go in and make your own pizza. Somehow it always tastes better, right? Somehow we never complain about the pizza that we make but it is a sense of participation beyond the service delivery that's important. Now, then the second thing, talk about 
because you may use the word elites, I always am in two minds as to how and what to define by the term elites. Is it elites by birth? Is it elites by performance? How do we define elites? Because when we say that, first of all, I'm not sure we can say that oh, the elites, this group of elites run the country and the rest are just being led. I'm not sure that is a, not an overly simplistic characterization of what we are doing. But I, I just want to make this distinction, very important distinction. So the fact <laughs> that I am now a minister I presume that qualifies me to be called an elite. Is that the definition? Yes, member of the political elite one, member of the academic aristocracy that is, you know, a, a state-sponsored system through scholarship and so on. Elite by uh, virtue of income and education. Is that so, enough or shall yeah. I go on? So that is all elite, right? So the fact that I have worked hard and grew up in a single-parent family that no longer matters. The fact that I have arrived makes me an elite and therefore I should be subject to all this perspective, accusations, whatever. But remember what I say about the ACS independent story. There is a difference between anti-elitism and anti-excellence. I don't take it against somebody, regardless of his background, if he does well and makes a contribution to society. And I think that's fair. But if someone has done well, not through his effort, maybe through his connection, ancestry, and maybe if someone has done well <coughs> and never reach out to people, then there is a difference. So today the word elites, I think, has many negative connotations. But to be anti-elitism is quite different to be anti-excellence. So I am called an elite, and rightfully so, if I do not care about the rest in society. If I live in my ivory tower after I have received my privileges. But if I have succeeded and done relatively well in this system, and if I continue to contribute to the society, to touch the lives of the people beyond my immediate family, then is it fair to also similarly bunch everybody together and say that you are therefore elites? I say this because I want us to be very careful. Today, perhaps in the worldwide global mood, there is a sense that we should pull down, tear down those people who have succeeded. <coughs> 
But if this is the narrow definition of elite, then does it serve us well? Is it what do we want in society to see? On one hand, we say that we want to give the best opportunities for everyone to succeed, to celebrate someone's success regardless of race, language, religion, ancestry, and connection. And yet, when the person has succeeded, we brand them as an elite, regardless of whether he is or not still reaching out, still serving, still contributing. So I'm, that's why I'm in two minds as to how to answer this question about elites. Do we really mean by elites in a very derogatory way, just those people who have succeeded? Surely not, right? Surely you can agree with me that going to ACS independent by itself is not elitism, but if the people in ACS independent do not reach out and do not care, then that is elitism, right? So I just want to make this subtle that distinction. Now, then I come to the issue of diversity. Because I think the question behind this elitist mood or this anti-elitist mood is that there is this certain select group of people that somehow keep to themselves and don't understand the rest of the world. If that is the definition of the elite class, then I agree with you. But is it true that those people, maybe as you say in government, they are really so monolithic, so uncaring, so on a world of their own. And sometimes it goes back to how we see and relate to people. How often have we not heard that you all come from the civil service, therefore you are all one of a kind. You all come from the SAF, therefore you are one of a kind. Really? 20,000 SAF regulars, all one of a kind? 100, over 100,000 civil servants, all monolithic, like robots? But strangely speaking, sometimes when we label people in groups like that, we precisely don't celebrate the diversity and don't see the individuals in that diverse group. Sometimes it's very comforting for us to pigeonhole people into certain groups. But because we, pe we pigeonhole people into different groups, we lose sight of the individual's contribution and talent. So all I'm saying is that I agree with you, if that group is monolithic, if that group is uncaring and onto a world of its own, by all means, call him elites and bash him up. But if that group of people have succeeded from diverse background, let us not turn that into an anti-excellence mode of thinking. Let us not pigeonhole people into groups that we find comfortable to do so. I grew up in the SAF and I'm proud of it. And I don't think anyone can touch his heart and say that every SAF officer is the same. It's not. People come from different backgrounds, 
people have different aspirations, people have different perspectives. And if we don't see people in the proper light, it goes back to where I started. We no longer value each other as individuals with in their proper right. And that, I think we do a disservice to the individual. We also do a disservice to ourselves in how we can unearth the potential of the people around us. So I don't think just because people come from the same organization, they are therefore rendered as elites or monolithic. I don't think so. And if I may say so, just because we are all in the cabinet, yesterday we were not in the cabinet, we come from diverse background, today we are in the cabinet and therefore we are clustered together and branded together all as one. What has changed after the clock struck 12 past midnight? So we all are individuals with different perspectives, different views. I hope to relate to fellow Singaporeans as such and I hope that fellow Singaporeans will also relate to each other as such, valuing each, trying to bring out the best in each. Minister, there are lots of young people in this room, in their uh, college uniforms and so on. And you've just talked there about you know, how we might define elitism or this question, this notion of the elites being something negative in Singapore society. And I think it, it's worth speaking about a little bit more because I'll give you an example. In Channel News Asia, we have interns coming to work for us. And recently, we had a group of them come in from Raff, uh, who had a background. They were previously from Raffles Institution. Uh, this is an institution that you went to. So did I. But where we may say, we're proud to say we went to Raffles, this group spoke privately to me about the fact that they didn't want to tell people that they had gone to Raffles, that in public at the weekends, they would deliberately not wear the Raffles institution, the hoodie, or they would wear it inside out so as not to be identified. This, this came from a young man who was in his early 20s. It shocked me as an individual. I want to know what you would say to the younger generations of Singapore, who you had, a, you know, your experience was different from theirs. I would say two things to follow up on what I said just now, how we relate to each other. Do we as a society look at a person and mock him just because he come from RI? Do we? And say that you are all RI, all one of a kind, you know, with that one broad sweep. Is that how we see people? If that is how we see people, whether it's RI, RGS, ACS or whatever, is that fair to that individual? Just pause for a moment and think. Just pause for a moment and think. Is that fair to the individual? We hardly even know the individual, but we have branded them in one big fell swap. So, so Minister, one how do we address that propensity to categorize, to label them? Because that is something. So I go back to where I start. Society. How do we relate to each other? Try not to make broad sweeping generalizations of where people come from. Because we like. 
to pigeonhole because it's perhaps comforting to pigeonhole people, you know. In a very messy world, it's good to say that Mui Hong is from RJC. So because I attach that RJC label to Mui Hong, then all kinds of adjectives start to flash on her forehead. But is that fair to Mui Hong? Right? So that is one perspective of how we relate to people to try not to pigeonhole people. Because if we want to celebrate the diversity, then let's understand that diversity. We all came from RI. That doesn't mean that I don't claim to be like Mui Hung or you and I don't think you all claim to be like me, right? But the second perspective is from the individual. So if you are from RI or the ACS of the world today and you know that the world expects much from you, sometimes not unfairly, to those with great powers come great responsibilities, then how do we rise to that occasion? How do we prove to people that just because I come from RI, I don't deserve that labor from you, that I'm a elitist? Because I'm not a elitist because I'm from RI. I'm only an elitist if I'm from RI and I do not care about the rest of the world. That I think that my very success is all about my hard work and intelligence. But if I come from RI and I understand fully my responsibility to society, that my success is also premised on the opportunities given to me by this very society. Then having succeeded, it is my responsibility to make sure that the system continue to allow other people to succeed just like me. Then I think there's nothing to be ashamed for that RI boy to have gone through RI. So I think it's how we relate to people and how we ourselves respond to all this, to me, unnecessary, unhealthy branding. I mean, you know, it's very Singapore, a very Singaporean conversation. I find this quite different from other countries. When we meet each other, I don't know, you know, how, what's your famous first pickup line? Uh, you know, you, you meet a stranger, you know. Where do you stay? Which school you come from? Uh, why do we ask such questions? Because we are trying to pigeonhole people and sort out all this messiness. Ah, four-room flat. Ah, Marymount Convent. So as if it gives us comfort. And then we suddenly think that we don't need to know Mui Hung as an individual anymore because we have two identifiers for Mui Hung. Ballroom flat, Marymount convent. And therefore, we know Mui Hung very well. Because all these are the identifiers that comes with Marymount convent and uh, Ballroom flat. By the way, just to clarify, she didn't come from Marymount convent. No, she's you know, also not staying in a four-room flat, right? I think. Yeah. So, so... That's how I would approach the issue. If we truly want to be a society, a gracious society that appreciates each and every individual, let's try to avoid, minimize such pigeonholing of people. See people for what it is, for what they can do, what they can contribute. Do we have time for some questions from the audience? Yes. Thank you, Minister, for many wise words. 
my name is Anne Wei. I'm from NUS. Yes, uh, and haven't seen you for a long while. Uh, <laughs> I wonder if something can be done to make better use of the national service experience to produce more social mixing. My nephews benefited greatly from NS, but they were A-level boys, and for conven admin convenience, all the A-level boys go into the same time of the year. I have a friend whose son is PR, because his mother is local and his father isn't, he went to a posh international school, and when he did NS, he went in at the other intake with all the odds and bods. The result was his buddy was a primary six boy, and the two of them got on excellently, and I think a kind of lifetime friendship grew. But the two boys in the next bunks were very proud of being loan shark runners. But he said, oh, they were such nice boys. Now, I think this experience is more exciting in terms of getting people mixing than the administrative convenience of taking all the A-level boys in at the same time. Because I have to say, much as I love my nephews, they didn't make any cross-class friendships as a result of NUS. Thank you. Thank you, Anne. I like your story. Can I share mine? I take offence that you all laugh at the word loan shark runner. <laughs> when I was the commanding officer of 2nd Battalion Singapore Infantry Regiment, my runner, that means my signaller, we call runner in the military just means the signaller. He's an illegal VCD seller. <laughs> so do you pigeonhole him? He's extremely loyal to the mission and the unit. He told me, Sir, can you tell me when is the battalion proficiency test? I said, This is this, this and this is, these are the dates, these were the dates. He said, okay, sir, I need to tell you I'm going to surrender to the police and I'm going to Changi. But I promise you, I will come back in time for the battalion proficiency test to chong with you. Negotiator. But sir, after that, can you allow me to surrender again <laughs> for my next offense? <laughs> I grew up on the left hand of the bell curve. I have a lot of experiences with such brothers. I learned the word brothers way before I joined the labor movement. <laughs> My soldiers were the one who told me that, sir, don't worry. Anywhere you go in Singapore, our brothers will take care of you. Are you still friends with them? They are still my brothers. <laughs> Proud of you. I never looked down on them because they sell illegal VCD. I know it was a hard life. 
because when they come into NS, their monthly allowance goes down to a few hundred dollars. Whereas at that point in time, the profit margin for every illegal VCD sold was about $5. I look at him as an individual because I realize how loyal, how sincere he can be. He didn't choose to become a illegal VCD seller. I tried to teach him computing. He told me, sir, you make me run 10 rounds and 10 kilometers, I'd rather do that. Can you don't torture me? Why I share this story is exactly what Anne was saying. We need to realize that in our society, there's a diversity of people out there. Let us not look at each other based on income, based on education level, based on housing type only. Let us look at each individual and value them for what it is. Please do not, and I learned this from MSF and Dylan, who is here, were probably one of my mentors who taught. Sometimes just because we are rich, we think that we are doing the poor a favor by going to help them. Maybe sometimes we are the ones who are being helped in the process. We are being helped because we learn to become better people. We learn to become more conscious of the people who are different from us. And I think that is the reason why very early on, I suggested to the Ministry of National, MND, Ministry of National Development, try to avoid building rental flats, rental blocks. Try to have within the same block, one room rental flat, three room flats, four room flats, five room flats. Let people share the same lift lobby for various reasons. Let people know that in Singapore, no matter how rich we are, there will be some who will always be less privileged than us. Let people know that even if I'm born to a one-room flat family, I can have hope and role models and I need not be stuck where I am. So, I was very cheered that in recent times, when MND, HDB built their flats, there's always different housing types within the same block. That helps. But that does not solve and will never be able to solve all the problems that we face. HDB can do what it does, but HDB cannot do everything for us. We need to reach out to those people who are not the same as us, who are less privileged in our definition and we need to get to know them, work with them, and respect them. If we can do that, coupled with the macro policies that you all have been talking about for the last one day, then I think we will have a beautiful Singapore when we reach SG100. But if the conversation stops at what else can the government do, what else can macro policies do, without the sense of community, the sense of individual, then I think no matter what policies we have, we can only go that far. So I hope that through all this talk about social mixing, we will really practice it. That I will not 
hear comments like, e, how can you put one-room flat together with my four-room flat? It depreciates the value of my flat. The NIMBY syndrome. This is the reason why recently, the People's Association, we decided that we should push ahead and not have this artificial divide between residence committee and neighbourhood committee, between HDB estates only committees and private estates committee. We are just all fellow Singaporeans. So we decided to change it and say that henceforth, all new residence committees will be called residence network. A network that is not homogeneous, a network that is heterogeneous. So we can try to do that at the community level, we can try to do that at the HDB level, but most importantly, let's try to do it at our respective level. Thank you, Mr. John. Another question, Pauline. Hey, Minister. I think, thank you for sharing your, your life story. And I think it is stories like yours and many, I think, of my fellow Singaporeans in this room including myself, you know, this is what made us proud of our country because the, fifth, the first 50 years of growth in Singapore, there was a lot of movement upwards. There was a lot of latitude for people from my generation especially because Singapore was bottom heavy. So my question really is, moving forward in the next 50 years, we know and we hear from our youths, the concern that the rags to riches stories are getting fewer and fewer, and that it's harder, particularly even for the middle class, to envision that they can move in the same kind of gradient and speed compared to their parents. And this causes dissettling, unhappiness, and perhaps a lack of optimism. So that's one question. The second is, I, I think we have to distinguish the difference between elite and elitism. Uh, I think you have rightly so addressed the concerns of elitism and how we should be able to be more inclusive wherever we are in our station. But Returning to the con conversation on elites, there will always be elites in any society. By definition, people who have arrived at certain station, who we put as leaders of a country or leaders of any organization. So the question is, can we bridge the distance between the masses, the ordinary Singaporean, and the elites? I think that is a critical question because if we can bridge this, then wherever we are at our stations, we will be able to identify with each other and grow the nation together with the same purpose. Thank you. Fully agree with you, Pauline. Those who have succeeded in our society must always remember, we didn't succeed just because we are talented and hardworking only. We succeeded because this society gave us the opportunity to succeed. When I was studying in Cambridge University, I knew of many foreign students there who are probably much more talented, much more hardworking than me. 
but they don't always have the same opportunities like what we have in Singapore. And maybe today, many of them are still struggling by, even though they have been to Cambridge University, in their, back in their own countries. So fully agree with you on the first point. Those who have succeeded must then know that we have a responsibility towards the rest of society to uphold the system, to refine the system, continuously improve upon the system so that the next generation can continue to succeed just like us. That the definition of our success is not how well we do for ourselves, but how well we enable the next generation to do better than us. If we can abide by that spirit, I'm very confident that Singapore will continue to grow from strength to strength. But there are also things that we design into our system to make sure that our so-called successful ones, I try to avoid the word elites because they have a lot of loaded meaning, the ones that are more successful never be living in a world of their own, if you like. You know, when I, now that I'm a minister, I interact with some of my counterparts overseas. They are very puzzled. They always ask me, who's your driver? So I say, I don't have a driver. Once I picked up a foreign guest at the airport, and I said, why don't you ride in my car and talk along the way? So he went to my car. So first he wasn't sure which car was my car because I drive a Toyota Prius. So he says, so first he was a bit uncomfortable. Oh, this is your car. Then he opened the back door and got in and sat at the back. <laughs> so I opened the front door and got into the driver's seat. <laughs> then he asked me, Pak Chan, so Pil Dimana, where's your driver? I say, so Pil, Sini. Oh, sorry, sorry. Jumped out of the back door, jumped to the front, passenger seat. He asked, then we drove off. Then we came to the first uh, traffic light. Then I stopped. Then he looked at me. Why you stop? <laughs> and I said, traffic light? He looked at me, but you minister, what? Then I looked at him, so? Then he looked at me again, but there's nobody around. So I looked at him, Singapore got a lot of cameras. <laughs> then we got into an interesting conversation. He said, why is it Singapore so strange? You minister, right? Why you drive your own car? Why don't you, don't you get a driver or uh, outriders as an escort? And I shared with him how our founding leaders decided very early on that we will not have such things unless it's on very officious duties like foreign delegations. Because we want our people to live as far as possible, as simply as possible, as much as possible as the common man. 
Because if you live too differently from the common man, you may one day forget how the common man live. If you have outriders for your vehicle every day, you will never solve the traffic congestion problem because the traffic congestion problem doesn't apply to you. Right? That's what happened in some countries. Now, having said that, can we fully get rid of this situation? It takes two hands to clap. By policy design, we can try to have HDB estates that have more mixing. We can try to have the condos in the middle of HDB precincts, try to build the flat such that it's almost indistinguishable between one from the other. But that's one part of it. But the other part of it must surely be that for those who have succeeded in whatever ways to understand and remember that our success is not just because of us. And it, because it's not just because of us, then it's incumbent upon us to reach out, to understand the other wonderful invention that we have in Singapore is this thing called house visit. As the party whip, I always encourage my fellow members of parliament to do this conscientiously every week. I know some who do it twice a week as I was taught. The reason for doing that is to make sure that we constantly know and feel the fears, concerns and aspirations of our people. Go out, talk to people, listen to them, poke our head into the house, see what's inside, smell what's inside, feel what's inside. Then we understand our people, fears, concerns and aspirations better. Are we perfect? Far from it. Can we do better? Certainly. But it takes more than the individual. We need a system, a system whereby we can consciously feel the pulse on the ground. And in Singapore, I've always reminded myself, the fact that we are small does not necessarily mean that we are nimble and responsive. The fact that we are small still means that we need a system to understand the fears and concerns and aspirations of our people so we can make policies that are both responsive to the people and responsible to the country for the long term. If we can do that well, then I'm very confident that the successful will not be looked upon with disdain just because they are successful. And I hope that we as a society do not look upon with disdain just because people are successful. That would be going too far. Only, you only have a right to look upon the successful with disdain if that successful have started not to care and reach out anymore. But if we just look at people with disdain just because they are successful, then who else dare to be successful in future? And does that make us a better society? And by successful, I don't just mean income. I don't just mean housing. We can be successful in multiple dimensions. And that's how we define our identity. Respect each other. 
as individuals, appreciate each other's strengths. And as I learned from Lillian, don't just keep looking at other people's weaknesses and what people cannot do. Look at what people can do. Look at how they can make a contribution and feel proud that they can do so. I agree with you, uh, Mr. Chan. It, um, it, it's probably, probably it's worth reminding everyone why we're here. Uh, you talked about the hopes and aspirations of Singaporeans, and that is what the Institute for Policy Studies has been doing for 30 long years, looking at, that, at building that bridge between the Singapore public and the government, because as uh, ESM Go said yesterday, you need to take a deep dive into these issues, hold that mirror up to the government in order to do better. Before we end, because we're rapidly running out of time, Yongwei has a final question. Uh, yeah, I have to beg uh, Don's indulgence for me to ask this question, otherwise uh, I, I, my colleague wouldn't let me go back to office, because I always press them to ask uh, these questions when they meet any 4G leaders. Uh, I think we are convinced that uh, the 4G team is a diverse team. But at the same time, uh, since it's a diverse team, how does the team reach a consensus to agree to disagree so as uh, not to be seen as group think and, um, and yet to put a united front to the public because we are so used to uh, the government speaking the same language or at least the same positioning. For example, uh, you know, we are discussing about uh, the hawker centres issues. So do you all agree that um, hawker centres should be run as a social enterprise? I think regardless of the issue, if you accept that the, the team, by the way, I don't like to use the word 1G, 2G, 3G, 4G, I don't know who invented this, uh, because it's not our leadership model. For a small country to have continuity in policy, direction, we have an overlapping model. We don't have sharp discontinuities, or we hope not to have sharp discontinuity in the model. It is the responsibility of the first generation, however you define it, to help the subsequent generation, and the subsequent generation to help the next generation to succeed. And have no illusion, just because tomorrow somebody becomes the leader of a particularly small country like ours, that we will naturally be able to stand on the world stage effortlessly. Can I tell you a real story? This year, DPM Taman brought me to Davos. And I mean it, he literally brought me to Davos. Would I have been able to gotten, would I have been able to get to Davos on my own? Sure, you can buy an air ticket and book a hotel. But would anybody want to meet this don't know who, Chan Chun Sing from Singapore? The answer is probably no. DPM Taman has to use the weight of his reputation to help us even secure meetings for the junior ones like us. And that was very gracious of him to say that, why don't you give this young person from Singapore a chance, talk to him, 
see whether he can make a contribution. That's how we keep the flag flying high. It's not about, oh, I'm the clever one. I just turn up and voila, you all should bow down deeply in front of me because I am from Singapore. I mean, if you come from a big country, yeah, maybe that works. But that's certainly not how it is in Singapore. So first, I think, try to move beyond the one, two, three, four, five. Try to see how we can build a leadership model that has sustained presence, that can help our country fly the flag in the international forum. To stand up there because people believe that we stand for continuity, consistency. How do we resolve issues and differences? We have different perspectives, we have different styles. That itself is not a weakness, it is a strength. To be able to see things from different perspectives is a strength. And I'm very proud that my fellow cabinet colleagues, we are all very different in our perspective. But all we ask of ourselves is only one thing. We can have different perspectives. We only ask for one thing, to put the interests of Singapore and Singaporeans first, always. Not ours, not the cabinet, not the government even, but Singapore and Singaporeans. Every policy that is brought before the cabinet, we ask ourselves, is this good for the country in the short term is the long term in the long term is this good for our people again in the long term in the short term if it's good for our people in the short term and not in the long term should we do it if it's good for our people in the long term but it's going to be difficult in the short term, how are we going to carry the ground? So it's only one unifying question. Is any and everything that we do good for the country and good for our people? The way I see it, see my responsibility, our responsibility is quite different. I'll just share with you my own personal story. I think many of you will remember the moment when Mr. Lee Kuan Yew teared on 9 of August 1965. Besides the moment where he teared, I don't know what other poignant moments you remember. For me, there was only one statement or sentence that he said that is always in my mind. And that is, henceforth from this day, the lives of 2.5 million Singaporeans is in our own hands. Today, it's not 2.5 million Singaporeans, 
is 3.5 million Singaporeans. But that fundamental issue has not changed. We didn't ask to be independent. We have to survive the odds and defy the odds. What's our mission together as the leadership team in this country? To keep this dream alive. To keep this dream alive so that Singaporeans have the chance and the desire to be called Singaporeans forevermore. It is not easy. For a small country to succeed, to defy the odds, we have to take care of our defence, our security, we have to get every of our able body male to do NS for two years and more. We have to take care of earning our living, making sure that there are jobs for our people, regardless of the global economic climate, regardless of the technological disruption. We have to keep our body and soul together, regardless whether we are rich or poor. It's never easy. It's never easy to be a small, independent, sovereign country. But we have every right to be optimistic. If the 1965 generation of pioneers and Medica generation with so much less can leave us on such a strong foundation, then there's absolutely no excuse for us in this generation to achieve anything less for the next. So how do we resolve our differences? We debate when we debate hard. But we also have the ethos that once we make a decision, once we make a collective decision, we will go all out to convince fellow Singaporeans to come along on the same journey. So some of you might have wondered why sometimes people like me stand up and talk about policies, government positions that are not under my immediate portfolio. Yes, it might not be under our individual portfolio, but we have a collective responsibility as the cabinet. A collective responsibility to explain things to fellow Singaporeans on why we choose what we choose. And this is how I hope every generation of Singaporean leaders will behave regardless whether you call it 1G, 2G, 3G, 4G, 5G, whatsoever not. And I hope that this is not just the spirit within the cabinet. We as fellow Singaporeans, we will have our different opinions, different perspective. That itself is a strength. It's a strength that we see things from different angles, and we can help check each other's blind spots, that we are never complacent with our own perspective. But having said that, then I also ask that we abide by the same rule, to put the country and our people first. That even on very 
vexing, tricky issues that you have discussed with Josephine, Desmond, Janil prior to this session this afternoon. That even the most vexatious issues, the most contentious issues, let it not split us. Because what we share in common is much greater than what we differ on specifics. And if we can hold on to that spirit, then I have every confidence that Singapore will continue to grow from strength to strength. Differences will not define us. How we reconcile our differences and build common ground will define us. And that is what I firmly believe in. It is not the differences that will define us. It is how we overcome the differences, find common ground, and take the country forward that will define us as a common people. So if I may wrap up, Yes, today we talk about social inequality, we talk about social immobility, we talk about diversity. There are indeed many challenges facing us. But for this generation, we have absolutely no excuse whatsoever to say that we cannot overcome such challenges. We have much more resources than in the past, we have much more capable people, and we have a much more open society, a much more inclusive society. We may not be where we want to be at this point in time, but we are certainly moving in the correct direction. And if we keep plugging at it, we will get to where we want to go. But I'm proud that as fellow Singaporeans, we care enough about such issues, care enough to debate openly, but beyond the debating openly, beyond finding the solutions at the system level, my simple message today, if I may repeat it, is beyond the system level, the policy level issues, let us all look to ourselves as well. Let us look to the community efforts as well to see how we can overcome these challenges together. If we think that it is not right to look at each other just on the dimension of income, housing type and so forth, let us not behave in that way where we pigeonhole people because of their income and housing type and education. If we believe that we truly want to be an inclusive society, that we respect each and every one for what they are worth, then let us not pigeonhole each other just because it is convenient for our mental models. Let us learn to appreciate the diversity, appreciate each other. Let us not make fun of each other just because we speak differently, we have a different twang, and we don't dress the same way as other people. Because if we can do that, then can I say this? Regardless how wide the income gap might be, if fellow Singaporeans feel that they are respected, they are valued, then it beats all statistics by any reports from anyone else. Because we have the confidence as fellow Singaporeans that we will respect each other for who we are and not just convenient categories in some pigeonholes. Thank you. Thank you, Minister. Thank you. And on that very apt note of not allowing our differences to define us, but looking for ways to overcome them, 
I have to bring this panel discussion to a close. It remains for me to thank Chuan Wei Hung from Straits Times, Han Yong Mei from News Hub, and of course, Minister for Trade and Industry, Chan Chun Sing. Thank you very much. We dealt with very serious questions uh, today, today, and I said this morning, I don't think we were going to arrive at any final answer, but I hope you agree with me, we've come a little way. Above all, I think we reinforce a certain way of talking about these difficult issues, as Tommy likes to say, disagree without being disagreeable. And for that, I wish to thank all the speakers today, Ministers Josephine, Desmond, Janil, and Chan Chun Teng, as well as Professors Walter, Pauline, and Cherian, as well as my friends Mui Hong and Yong Meng, not to mention the chairs, uh, Manu, Eleanor, um, uh, Susanna, and Dawn, of course. Diversities um, can result in fault lines. They can be productive of richness. We know that. Differences can destroy societies, and they can impel civilizations forward. Nothing in society is automatic. Nothing in society, the natural order of things. It depends on how we respond to, regard diversities, differences, including how we talk about them, talk to each other. As all of you know, uh, something like this conference cannot be done without plenty of people working very hard behind the scenes. I want to thank Samshuri, Chan Hung, and Ariel. She's been um, announcing things. Hansen, who helped me raise money, it's a very important thing. And IPS incomparable staff led by Irene Sealing. Um, I don't know where she is, with two children, one a toddler, worked all hours for days. Uh, Vani, um, uh, Pauline told me that she's been receiving email from her at all hours of the night and day. Um, uh, Zahida, I think she's around, she's a huge woman, seven months pregnant. Uh, which is tooling around. I hope you don't think I abuse all my staff, but <laughs> uh, she's been tooling around, working very hard by the picture of calm. And Regine, uh, only 23 years old, and, uh, and she's been dealing with all the registration. So thank you, all of you. And finally, thank you, the audience. Please don't forget to fill in the questionnaire, um, the evaluation forms. That's very important to us. But do join me in thanking the speakers, the organizers, and of course, yourself. <laughs>